You are great, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, Lord, as we wrap up Thanksgiving, Lord. Make us a grateful people, Lord, all the days of our life, Lord. We thank you for your sovereign grace in our lives, and we love you, Jesus. And I pray as as I speak, Lord, that you would speak, Holy Spirit. We want to hear from you today, God. And so we thank you for your presence, and we acknowledge that you are here. So, Lord, we're ready. We're listening, and we love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy Family Worship Day, everybody. My name is Sean Dunn, and I'm one of the adult uh, family zone pastors, and uh, I get the privilege of speaking to you. I used to be, uh, a few years ago, the kids pastor, and so I'm super excited that the elementary kids are in here, and so I will be speaking to them as well, as well as all the students in our junior high and high school, as well as all of you guys. So it is kind of fun to have the whole family. That's what we want to be as a church, a family church, and so we're here worshiping together, and I'm excited to be here. And so I brought a lot of props and a lot of things, so hopefully I'll be able to keep, uh, keep you uh, in to what I'm going to say, because I'm very excited. Now, as you can see, I have two tables, and we are, we find ourselves on November 26th, Family Worship Day, in between two holidays, okay? So for the last, I don't know, week maybe, we've really been, we've been thinking about thankful lists, and we've been uh, maybe thanking God more than we usually do. We've certainly been eating a lot, okay? Some of us are still in that food coma and you're just sitting there and you're just, you're just hoping to not eat for like an hour, okay? And so you're enjoying Thanksgiving and you've been thankful and you're thanking God for all that has happened. But, but it's kind of like the last bite of the pecan pie happens and suddenly your mind and all of American grocery stores and all of American malls and all that makes a hard right shift. And what happens is you're thinking about this other day and you know it's coming. And so while you are thankful, you know that it is Christmas time. Christmas time, we get to celebrate this holiday for 35 days or something like that, okay? And obviously what we celebrate in, in Christmas is Jesus, the incarnation, God coming to earth and hope that he brings. And so while we are thankful, we are looking towards Christmas. And with Christmas comes red and green, comes Christmas parties. What else did I write down? Ugly Christmas sweaters, 30 to 40 days of holiday. We're still going to be eating, okay? We're just eating different things at Christmas, okay? And, and, but throughout, it's this idea of the hope of Christmas, the hope of Jesus coming. And I had hope here because my heart is, is for us, as we find ourselves in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, my heart is to kind of bridge the two, help us to understand why we are so thankful, but also help us to look towards Christmas and the hope of what Jesus did when he came and then when he died and resurrected. And so I can think of no better, um, no better, story than a story that has nothing to do with Thanksgiving or Christmas, the Sermon on the Mount, for us to understand this. And so you might be like, wow, I wouldn't have chosen that one. But I did, and I did because I am super excited about the Sermon on the Mount. For the last 
couple of years, I've actually been studying the Sermon on the Mount. I used to go, yeah, you know, the Beatitudes, I, I got all that. But the Sermon on the Mount is the culmination of Jesus' teaching. So it's in Matthew 5 through 7. We are not going to be going through Matthew 5 through 7. We are going to be going through three verses in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think there's a lot for us to get on thankfulness and hope as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, my heart is that you would really understand this because if you understand some of the context and the background, then this, this Matthew 5 through 7, and it's also in Luke chapter 12, it's gonna just light up for you this idea of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' manifesto. So what I say about that is like, it's like the greatest hits of Jesus. When I was uh, growing up, I uh, was born in the 70s and late 70s, 80s, we used to have these things that we listened to called tapes. And then eventually they went to something called CDs. And I watched a lot of TV growing up. And one of the things that I... uh, that, that I would watch is they would have these compilation CDs and like the, the 50 best love songs of all time. And they would list them and it'd be like Luther Vandross and Chicago, you'll be inspiration and all that kind of stuff. And all these, and you'd be like, that one's that, that one's great. That one's great. I know that one. And you were, you thought, man, they really did find the 50 best love songs of all time and put it all in that little compilation CD. And, uh, and this is like the greatest hits of Jesus. You know all these things that I'm about to say in terms of the list. You've heard them all. You might not know that they were in the Sermon on the Mount, but they're all there. And so think about it. Love your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, lest you be judged. Turn the other cheek. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. You are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's all in the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount is it was, it was considered by everybody as like, this is like all of Jesus' teachings in one major sermon. And it was powerful, and it, it is what all consider to be like all of his greatest teachings. But in this sermon, there's one thing that he spoke about more than anything else, And it was the thing, scholars all agree, if you reduce what Jesus said down to one main thing, there was one thing that he said more than anything else. And it wasn't about the love of God, although he talked all about that, okay? It wasn't about sin, although he talked some about that. The thing that he spoke about more than anything else across the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is this, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what he spoke about, and he, he would tell stories about it. He would tell parables. He would tell all these things to try to explain to the people about the kingdom of God. So when he stands up and gives this sermon, and we're going to talk about this, he's kind of trying to help them understand the kingdom of God. But the problem is today, when we hear the kingdom of God, we're from America. We're, you know, a lot of us are 10. We've never lived under a king. Okay, and so a lot of times we hear that and it's like, oh yeah, the kingdom of God. And when I was a kid, what I thought of the kingdom of God is I thought, oh yeah, it's like British people walking around with robes and and kiss my ring, please. And oh, let's watch a wedding. Okay, we think of like, you know, uh, the British monarchy is the only thing of, of understanding that I have in terms of the kingdom and what a kingdom means. And so I was like, oh, the British monarchy and like pompous kings for many, many years. That's what we're supposed to do. You might have, it might've kind of looked something like this in your brain. Hear ye, hear ye. 
desire King Me the First, naturally. Perchance you may think of this kingdom as a place of frolicking and play, but nay, you have but one thing to do, and that is my bidding. So fetch me some tea and play me a fiddle. Someone? A fiddle? No, fiddle. Well, fine. I must bid thee adieu then. Parting is such sweetness for me. Adieu, adieu. So a lot of us, we think of, oh, the kingdom of God, it maybe look like that, and, and that's a great theme, but that's not obviously what Jesus was talking about. Uh, but in my brain, and I'm serious, as a kid, that's what I thought. That's like, that's a kingdom, a, a king, and he walks around and has a big purple ring and stuff like that. So I didn't understand it. And scholars will say the kingdom, what Jesus was trying to get across, they would define the kingdom is the rule and reign of a, king, of a person's effective will. And I would hear that, and Mick Murray would go, I got it. Okay, I understand. But I didn't understand even at that, okay? So that definition still, the, the rule and reign of someone's effective will, what does that mean? Simplify it for me, because I definitely need it simplified. It's kind of like what Jesus, when he was coming out, this kingdom was the way things I'm going to run things, the way I'm going to run things is what Jesus was trying to get across. That's what a kingdom is gonna do. He was the way my kingdom will function. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes in and he starts to begin to talk about a kingdom and they knew and they heard, okay, this is the way he is going to run things, the way he's going, to, it's going to look in this kingdom, the way he's going to rule. And it would be different than anything that anybody would have ever understood. It's kind of like we know kingdom because Adults, you go into a workplace and there's a mini kingdom there. You go into a workplace and it's like the kingdom is, there are certain rules and certain ways you do things that your boss wants to make sure that it's done and you abide by those. And hey, we work on Saturdays, I guess, in this kingdom. Okay, okay. Or you know what? We have to work late even when we weren't supposed to work late. Well, I guess that's this kingdom. There's like a mini kingdom. We all understand what it means to walk into a place and there's something that we have to abide by, a rule, a way of life that's in that mini kingdom. Kids, you understand this. You go to school. Uh, I went to Foster Elementary School in Arlington, Texas in the late 70s, early 80s. And we, for some reason, I didn't walk like this with my hands behind my back anywhere in the whole world ever since or before. But every time we went from class to class, boom, our hands are behind our back, okay? That's a, that was a little bit of a kingdom. And then you go from fifth grade to sixth grade, and you go from elementary school to middle school, and it's like, wow, they do things a lot different here. And so you understand. And so if I could, if I could help all of our kids, but I think it also helps, helps us, for those of you who are in school, when you walk into the first day and your teacher comes out and your teacher gets you and you, she sits you down or he sits you down, and they're like, well, it kind of might look like this. When I wake up in the morning and the lung is out of water, I don't think I'll ever make it on time. So excited to have you all in my class this year. Let me just get real with you for a moment. <laughs> Tell you how things are going to work in our classroom. You see, in my class, we don't put each other down. I want you to think of our class like a family. The work will be hard, I'm not going to lie but it'll be worth it. You'll be changed. We'll have field trips. We'll have adventures. We'll laugh. 
There'll be times when you feel like you can't do it, though. But I want you to remember in those times you're not alone, that you're part of our class. And, bonus, no homework on Fridays. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, thank you for that, okay. So obviously, uh, Jesus did bring a kingdom, but it almost looked like, hey, this is the way it's gonna work in my kingdom. Just like that teacher lays out, this is the way it's gonna work in this classroom. Now, again, you and I don't fully understand kingdom, but you can bet that all of Israel understood kingdom because they, they were under kings and they weren't under British monarchy type kings with weddings and stuff. They were under kings and the way, what the king wanted is what the king got. And the king would come in and he would shift things and he would always change things. And so if there was a king like Josiah, who was a righteous, good king, he would draw the people to God. Josiah finds the book of the law and then all he gets, he's like, we're not following this at all. And so he gets the whole kingdom to jump in and do what God wants. But then there's the evil kings and there were a lot of evil kings in the Bible and there was Manasseh and Manasseh was a king of Judah and he was really bad. He caused all of Israel to start worshiping idols and going to the high places. He killed a lot of people. He was a wretched, really bad king. And you can bet that these people who are hearing this and sitting down, and we're going to talk about them in a second, you can bet that they understood that when a king comes, the way he will function, what he will bring, he will shift things, and this kingdom will affect everything about culture. Everything. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts talking about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And they understood what he was saying. It landed on them. But I don't wanna to get too far in that because I want you to explain. And if you miss this about the Sermon on the Mount, Mount, not mouth, the Sermon on the Mount, I think you're gonna miss so much of the power of what Jesus said. And it is this, that with the kingdom, who was there? Like, who was there? Because if we understand the context of who's there, I think the Sermon on the Mount comes alive. It did for me. So Jesus was starting to get popular. He's done some miracles. People are starting to follow him. And I always imagined as a kid, I was like, oh, and he called 12 guys up on a mountain and they sat there and he talked. That's not the scene that's going on. The scene is this. There's 12 disciples that are his core disciples, but there's probably a hundred more women and younger people and men as well. And they are the disciples as well. So there's the 12 inner crowd, but then there's hundreds of people that are following him. But Jesus had become very, very popular. So it's not just, that, not just those people, it's also the crowds. So I want you to look around. It's like maybe not the size of this room in terms of the breadth, but about this amount of people. There's a lot of people sitting on the Sermon on the Mount. So picture not 12, but picture 400, 500 people sitting there and listening to Jesus speak. And as he does... He sits them down and, you know, I might have started the Sermon on the Mount with like, hey, I got a funny story to tell you. He doesn't do that. The first thing he does is he looks out at this mass of people and these were the common folk of the day and he says this in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, when I was, uh, when I was younger and even like five years ago, I always got confused on the Beatitudes because I'm like, well, blessed are the, those who mourn and blessed are the, what, what about can people be joyful and followers of Jesus? I didn't get it. But, but with this, blessed are the poor in spirit, our minds immediately go to, oh, he's talking about the poor. So blessed are the poor. Jesus loves the poor. We know that. But that's not who he's talking about as he's saying that. They're not hearing that. And he's like, okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. Maybe it's sad people. Maybe it's people who have gone through things. And Jesus obviously is very near to the brokenhearted, the Bible says. But what people have interpreted the poor in spirit to mean is spiritual zeros. So I want you to think of that. People who are spiritual zeros. So one of my... Uh, one of the guys that I love to read is a guy named Dallas Willard. And this is who he explains is there. And don't miss this because there's something for us as we think about these people who are poor in spirit. He says, standing around Jesus as he speaks are people with no spiritual qualities or abilities at all. You would never call on them when spiritual work is to be done. They had no charisma, religious glitter, or clout. They don't really know their Bible No one calls on them to lead a service or even lead prayer. And they would faint, actually, if anyone did. They would be the first to tell you that they they can't make heads or tails of religion. And they would be the last ones to say they have any claim whatsoever on God. And these are the people who are sitting in that crowd. People who are like, well who have written themselves off. The, the things of God were for the religious elite, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, but all these people aren't Sanhedrin or Pharisees. They're the common everyday folks. And the first thing that Jesus says out of the gate is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who don't think of themselves as religious or great at knowing God. And they would kind of, they would almost say, yeah, I'm actually not that. He, he's not for me. He's for those religious people. He's for the people who are, Um, who have it all together and I don't have it all together. So I want you to imagine how much this would have been a blow away. They would not have been like, wow, that's that's awesome. That's really interesting, blessed. Because that's what I did when I read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Okay, that's awesome, okay? But they're not hearing that. They're going, me? I get to be a part of this? Do you know me? Because if you know me, What are you doing? No king has ever talked about that. Kings choose people who are worthy and I'm just a common person. And I don't really understand a lot of this stuff. And not only did Jesus say, hey, I'm opening the kingdom up to you, but I'm actually gonna have you be the salt and light of the kingdom. You're gonna go out and you're gonna be the ones to proclaim and you're gonna be the ones to draw people in. Nobody asked these folks to draw people in. These people had jobs, they were working class, They weren't the people that were asked to come in. And Jesus says, I choose you. Not only do I choose you, but I'm commissioning you to go. The spiritual zeros, the kingdom is open for you. And it would have blasted them. It would have been like, it would have, they would not have understood it. It was a radical thing for him to say that. And I love that Jesus is looking to include all these people who had been written off by the religious elite and also written off by themselves. Because really it's both. Oftentimes we write ourselves off when it comes to God. And what, what, what Jesus is saying is, no, I'm not writing you off. I'm inviting you in. I'm, I'm a, an includer, okay? So one of my, uh, we at different times on staff have done something called Finder. 
And uh, strengths finders, when you study your top five strengths and your bottom five strengths, and like, don't ever do those, but do these, okay? And one of my top three is includer. I don't know if it's one or three or whatever, but this is what the definition of an includer is. People with includer talents believe that everyone is equally important. Your heart goes out to those who are left out. You associate being left out leads to feeling unimportant and insignificant. You believe that no one deserves to feel that way, so you instinctively invite people into your group so that everyone can benefit from the support of friends. Hope I've never left you out. If I have, I'm not perfect. But the thing is, when I go to parties or when I am there, I notice people on the margins and people on the edge, and I just want them to be a part. I don't always go up, but I just feel uncomfortable for them because I know how hard it is when you come in and you're kind of the ones left out. And you're the one that's kind of like, gosh, I just feel uncomfortable. I notice those people. And I want to say that's a group of people who Jesus is talking to, the ones who had been left out of the things of God. And they didn't necessarily want to be. They just thought that's how things were. Imagine that that's who is hearing this. And they're like, I get to be a part? My, I grew up, uh, I have an older brother. Who's a younger, the youngest in your family or a younger brother, younger sister? Do you have an older brother, sister? Okay, I feel you. Okay, so let me explain what would happen with me and my brother. My brother was two years older and him and his friends, I always wanted to play football and basketball with them. And uh, I was always like up for it and ready. And they would be like hitting, they would give me something called froggers and they would hit me right here. And it'd be like, oh, it hurts, but I want to play with you anyway. And so we would play and I would want to so much be on the team. And it always went to captains. We would start playing football and Luke was my brother and uh, Daryl was uh, one of his friends. And Daryl and Luke would always be like, okay, captains, time to pick. And so I'd be like, here we go again. Okay, uh, because I knew what would happen. I was, I was, you know, I'm a tall guy now, but back then I wasn't that tall. And I remember, I remember thinking, gosh, you know, um, you know, they're not going to pick me and they're going to regret it. Okay, they're going to regret it. They will rue the day that they didn't pick me because I will juke and jive and do all those things. And I promise you, they will, they will have made a mistake if they didn't pick me. And of course, they did, didn't pick me for often. Uh, and I didn't always juke and jive, and I just got hit a lot. Uh, but one of the things that actually happened is I would eventually make the team. And in the end, it didn't matter if I was picked first or I was picked last. I just wanted to be on the team. I just wanted to belong. And Jesus is talking to a group of people who kind of belong to each other, but they never belong to the things of God because for them, it wasn't for them. And they get to hear that, that this kingdom is for them. It would have been a blow away. Uh, and to show you this, I have uh, Jesus told parables, and I want to actually show you a parable. And uh, this parable is a true story back in the early 2000s, uh, late 1990s. There was a lady, most of you have heard of her, named Oprah Winfrey, okay? Some of you uh, know of her. Some of you are like, I've never heard of Oprah Winfrey. But Oprah Winfrey was a talk show host. Now she's like a billionaire. She's one of the richest ladies in the world. And as she got more popular and popular and popular, she used to do these shows. And the shows were called Oprah's Favorite Things. 
things. And Oprah's favorite things were she would give away. And so, so these ladies, mostly ladies, it was like 85% ladies and like 15% men who would come to Oprah's show or something. And uh, they would sit there and it just so happened that if you walked on Oprah, Oprah Winfrey's favorite thing day, what happened was you get all of Oprah's favorites. And so it's like, here's my makeup liner. And, and she's like, everybody gets one. So everybody gets the makeup liner and here's some pantyhose, you know, and everybody in the guy's like, uh, re-gift, you know, kind of a deal. Um, and, but, but I mean, these ladies just came, these people just came and they got to be a part of this awesome thing called Oprah's Favorite Things and they got all this stuff. Well, I think this is 2004. She kind of ups the ante and I want you to watch as it's at the end of the show, these ladies and some of these men have been given things all, uh, all show long. So for the last 45, 50 minutes, this is the last part of the show. Everybody in the audience, now listen to me carefully, is being given a special package, and I don't want you to open it. Do not open it. Cameras are on you, so do not open until I tell you. All right, open your boxes. Open your boxes. One, two, three. a car. Now, I know some of you'd be like, and they had to pay taxes on it too. Okay. But the truth is, the truth is that's true. But just bask in that. She gave everybody a car and you can see they are excited. They're jumping up and down. And you know what? On uh, the reason I'm telling that story is because I don't think that when Jesus is speaking at the Sermon on the Mount, that the disciples are like, they're not doing that. But you can imagine the wonder of it all that He's including me. He's saying, you get the kingdom and you get the kingdom and you get the kingdom and you get the kingdom. And it would have blown their minds. They would have been like, this is too good to be true. They would have been astounded at that. And this is the truth. And so what does this kingdom really look like? This kingdom that Jesus spoke about what does it look like? And so I want to tell us a story, and uh, it's one of my favorite stories. And it, it's, if I listed all the things that, that was the kingdom, uh, we would be here for a long time. And so I'm not going to list all the bullet points, but I want to tell you one story because Jesus often tried to tell stories to help us to understand the kingdom. If you look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he would say, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. And then he would go into a story for them to understand. So I want to say this is one picture of what maybe the kingdom of God looks like. There's a guy uh, named Tony Campolo, and uh, he is a sociologist and a follower of Jesus. And in the late 90s, he's very popular. I don't, I don't know if he's still around. He still speaks. He loves God, and he's from Philadelphia and has a really thick Philly accent. And uh, he was called to go to this conference, and the conference was in Hawaii. So he goes to this conference and uh, he gets in like one o'clock at night, like really, really late. And at the conference, he's, uh, he's gonna be speaking the next day, but he's like starving, he's hungry. So 1.30, two o'clock, he gets all his stuff in the hotel and he's like, I'm gonna go see if there's anything in Honolulu that's open that I can eat. So he goes out and he finds only this one place, it's this little diner. And it's like, if you think of a greasy spoon, that's it, okay? The, the guy at the front who owns the place has like an apron on. It looks like he just killed a cow like right before, you know, he, 
Tony got there. It's bad, you know, and, and Tony's like, wow, nothing is appetizing, but it was the only thing that's open. So at 2.30 in the morning, he orders a donut and he's sitting there and he's kind of at the bar at the, at the front of the diner. And in, very loudly, walks all these people. And they were an obnoxious group of ladies, okay, finishing work at 2.30 or 3. They had just gotten off work. And you could say that these ladies were definitely outcasts, okay? It involved work that was harsh and hurtful to themselves and others. And they get off work, and they're coming in, and they are cussing up like sailors and all this stuff and talking about all that happened as they worked at night. And, uh, and Tony's just sitting there listening. And there's this one lady, and he doesn't know her name, but she's like, hey, did y'all know that tomorrow is my birthday? And they're like, well, what do you want us to do? Throw you a birthday party? Make you a cake? They're making fun of her. And she's like, no, I don't want that. I'm just saying it's my birthday. I was just, I don't expect y'all to do anything. I've never had a birthday party before. So, you know, whatever. And so they talk some more. And Tony thinks of an idea. And he's like, he's mulling it over in his brain. Well, the ladies eventually leave. leave, And he turns to the guy. His name's Harry, which is a great name for a guy who owns a restaurant. And he says, um, he says, hey, Harry, what do you say? Who is, that, who is that lady that was talking about her birthday? And he's like, well, that's Agnes. I don't know if Harry talked this way, but that's how I'm going to share it, okay? <laughs> that's Agnes, and uh, she's one of the good ones, actually. She always is looking to help people and so forth. And so Tony's like, well, what do you say? We throw a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow. And Harry kind of, yeah, yeah. And he calls his wife, hey, Jan, get on out here. And so Jan comes up. And he's like, this guy wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow night. What are you saying? Chan's like, oh, yes. And Harry's like, I got the cake. I'm a cook, as you can tell, and I know how to make cake. So I'll get the cake. And Tony and him and Jan make a plan to, that rhymed, make a plan. And they come together and, and they decide that they're going to throw a birthday party tomorrow at 2.30 in the morning for all these ladies. Or not all these ladies, but Agnes, but invite everybody. Well, Tony goes, goes to bed, does his speaking, gets up. About 2 o'clock, he rolls into the diner and begins to set up. Around 2.30, all of the reprobates, sinners, people who are really rough crowd start showing up. It had gotten around. And suddenly, all these people, other than Agnes and her friends, are at the diner. And they got everything, and Tony pulls them together at 2.45. He's like, okay, when Agnes gets in, we are going to say, happy birthday, Agnes! And Harry's going to bring out the cake. And so about 3.15, Agnes and her friends come in after getting off of work. And they walk in, and suddenly it's, happy birthday, Agnes! Woo! They're all yelling and screaming and clapping, and they sing, happy birthday to you. And Agnes is just, she, she's just floored. She's like a deer in headlights. She's just like, doesn't know what to do. And Harry brings out the cake with the candles. And Agnes has enough wherewithal to whew, blow out the candles. And Harry's like, okay, Agnes, time to cut the cake. Come on, Agnes. And she's just staring at the cake. She's just focused on the cake. And she, she's like, uh, Harry, can... Can, can we maybe just not cut the cake yet? 
And Harry's like, well, it's your birthday party, Agnes, and there's all these people here, so it's time to cut the cake, Agnes. She's like, well, but could I just take the cake? I live a couple of blocks away. Could I just hold the cake and just take it for a little while? I'll be back in a little while. I just want to go show my mom. She lives, she lives a couple of streets away, and that's, we live there together, and, and I want to show my mom. And so Agnes... Harry's like, well, I guess it's your birthday party, Agnes, not mine. So she takes the cake that everybody's there to eat, and she walks out the door, staring at it like he said, like it was the holy grail. And she's just walking, mesmerized by this cake. She walks out the door. And as she walks out the door, all eyes are whoosh on Tony, okay? Because like, what are you going to do now? And he's like, and he stands up on a chair, and he says, what do you say we pray? And he's like, he bows his head before he can see what everybody thinks. <laughs> and he begins to pray. He prays that God would help Agnes, that God would show how much he loves Agnes. He prays for her salvation. He prays for that Agnes's life would turn around. He just prays blessing over Agnes. And he finishes the prayer and he says, amen. And Harry's like right there, okay? And Harry's like, hey, I didn't know you were a preacher. If you were a preacher, I wouldn't agree to this at all. What kind of church do you go to? And Tony Campolo says, you know, I don't always have the right answer for the right time. But he says, I go to a church where we throw birthday parties for outcasts and sinners at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry's like, there's no church like that. Because if there was a church like that, I'd go to that church. And that's how the story ends. A little caveat, I was looking at this today uh, just to make sure I was telling the story right. And a couple years later, Tony Campolo speak, is speaking at, uh, at a place and it's his birthday. He walks into a room that is filled with birthday balloons and party streamers. He, he relates this story and it says, happy birthday, love Agnes. And so, isn't that awesome? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. She cha- it changed her life. She now works at that diner. Um, But that's the kingdom. The kingdom of God is where people get what they don't deserve, where the grace of God wins the day. This kingdom is where everyone has worth in the eyes of God, where Jesus, God made into flesh, invites whomever, opens up the kingdom to whoever wants it and says, you're invited in. And not only you get to be on the edge, you get to be a part of it all. Unmerited favor, is the kingdom of God. Grace of God is the kingdom of God, a kingdom where the crucified son of God with nails in his hands and his feet offers a new life to anybody willing from any background, from any place who's done anything, he invites you in. That is a blow away for us to understand this is the kingdom. And as he begins to talk about the kingdom, they would have been shocked that he was saying that they get to be a part of this. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying, this is how I do it in my kingdom. This is how we do it here. And they would have been blown away. Later on in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he says this phrase. He says, Matthew 6.33. And Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He was like, hey, I've been talking about all these things, the way I'm gonna rule, the way you should think and all these, but in the end, just seek first the kingdom, okay? And I've often been like, yeah, I just need to keep the kingdom central. I just need to keep Jesus at the forefront. And sometimes it feels a little bit of pressure. Like I just wanna make sure that I'm seeking the kingdom because I'm so prone to seek other things and I'm so prone to want this or want that. But Jesus 
wants me to seek the kingdom. And so if you wonder how am I talking about the Sermon on the Mount with Christmas and Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and hope, because the kingdom, we should be so grateful that he would include us. Because whether you are, you've been a Christian for most of your life, you were once where those people were. You were not at all a people who follow God. And God said, I invite you in. So we should be eternally grateful. And then we should have great hope because Jesus came and we celebrate that at Christmas. And we celebrate that he came and he came to die. 33 years later, he goes to a cross, he dies, he's resurrected. And then we are to thank that one day, I don't know when it be, he will come again. So we have hope and we have great thanksgiving. And so that's why I thought of this story. And I want to end with my favorite part of the story. So again, I told you, I mentioned, I think I did, that in Matthew 6, 33, he, said, uh, he says, can you go back to uh, Matthew 6, 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, the same story, and I'm wrapping up because everybody wants to know when I'm about to end. So I'm about to end in a couple minutes. Um, Matthew 6, 33, he's like, He's speaking of this kingdom. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, make it central. And so Matthew has this, but what you need to know is in the gospel of Luke, it is there too. And the gospel of Luke is like two different people looking at the same scene. And so Luke basically is saying the same thing Matthew says, going through the same beatitudes and so forth. They say it a little different, but it's the same story. And so in Luke 12, 31, not 12, 32, but in 12, 31, he says, and don't put it up yet, but he says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you, okay? And, and you're like, okay, uh, that's exactly what they said in Matthew. But then my favorite part is this next phrase, and we're gonna put it up in just a second because I love that Luke caught this. Maybe Matthew didn't catch it or something, but this is my favorite part of the story. And... Uh, and I want us to end with this. This is what Jesus says. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I know maybe it doesn't hit you like it hits me, but let me tell you why it hits me. Because God wants you in the kingdom more than you maybe even want in the kingdom. And it is his good pleasure. It's not something he's being forced to do. Like, oh, I gotta let all those people who've done all these bad things in. It is his good pleasure to let you in the kingdom. And some of us understand that, but I know there's some of us in this room would say, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my life. And Jesus says, that's who I came for. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sometimes I do this with when I speak to our elementary kids. So I want everybody to close their eyes. And I want you to hear this a couple of times for you. I want you to personalize it. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, Chloe, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, Alex, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's, he wants you and he loves you. And I know many of us have given our lives to Jesus. And if that's the case, then obviously we say thank you. But if you're wondering if the kingdom is still open wide, it is. And it's for anyone. 
anyone, just to fathom that it is his good pleasure. It's not just something he does, it's something he wants to do. And so we're going to enter into a time of ministry. And what I want to invite you to is there's going to be our prayer teams that come to the front. And I want to invite you in to just receive it anew. Or maybe if you've never, because it isn't just for those people who have it together. He actually came first for the people who needed a doctor, the people who didn't have it at all together. And we should revel in that in this season. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So I'm going to pray. And then please come. Get prayer for whatever you need. Prayer teams, please come to the front. Lord, we do love you. And, and uh, it's a blow away, Lord. Thank you that we get the kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, that this was not just for the religious elite. Thank you that you saw my face and you saw us. And you said it is my good pleasure. Thank you, Jesus, that you would let anyone in. We love you, Jesus. And we need you, Jesus. We thank you, God.